Joe, we're doing every other week now for episodes, but you know, other podcasts do kind of those like mini episodes in between their bigger episodes when certain things come up. Yeah, it's where basically the host can't wait until the next episode. We're just so excited There's to get it out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like we gotta ru- rush this out because it's it's exciting, urgent slash all of the above. It may not fit in with what the planned episodes are, but something came up and it's like, oh, I got to share this. Um, And it came up with a clever name for them because this is Minnesota. And that's what you do is come up with clever things. (laughs) (laughs) I did name the podcast of which we can never remember what the name is, but (laughs) that's okay. Yeah. But I came up with mini-sodes. Mini-sodes. All right. right. So instead of episodes, mini-sodes. It's a mini-sode. And that's what we're here doing right now. Yes. Mini-sode. So I had the opportunity to interview a family that has a long connection with Grammar A going back to 1937. And I was able to interview them about their, uh, it was actually a gentleman named Dean Erickson. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed him about his parents, Curtis and Adair Erickson. And y'all play the interview and people can know their connection to the town of Grammar, but it's a very interesting story. Yeah. And it also actually, you said that sometimes these mini-sodes aren't going to fit into the theme of either the month or the most recent episodes. This one in a roundabout way actually does. It does. And I, I, yeah, which this next episode coming up, our main episode is going to be um, organized crime mm. in Cook County. Mobsters. Mobsters, gangsters, and the like. Mm-hmm. And this episode actually touches a bit on legalized gambling in Cook County prior to it becoming illegal. Mm-hmm. So that is where the story kind of goes. And it so it does have a small connection to that. However, when I did, there, there's a portion of the interview I did edit out where I asked directly, if, you know, Curtis Erickson ever had any connection with the mob, given what he did for a living, and he said no. So that kind of well, took it out a little bit yeah. from <laughs> that episode. But I, I, you know, I think everything at some point was connected. It's just you may not have known it, or he wasn't going to ever say it. <laughs> yeah. Well, how it all came to be was exciting. About um, it's now a property that's listed as a vacation rental by Cascade mm-hmm. Vacation Rentals. Uh, this home that we're going to be hearing more about. I haven't heard the interview yet, so I'm a, I'm as excited as you, the listener. Uh, Jay, you were really enthusiastic after you got to meet with these people and hear more about the history of, of this interview. So I am totally amped about this. Well, let's play it. And this is an interview with Dean Erickson, the youngest child of Curtis and Adair Erickson. His wife, Anne-Marie, you'll hear her. Occasionally, you'll hear um, their daughter, Katie. And then at one point, um, her... Uh, husband Tyler comes in and we're all sitting in the dining room of the house that Curtis and Adair uh, built which you'll hear more about that during the interview so let's play that. My name is Dean Erickson. This is my wife Anne-Marie, my daughter Katie, and my son-in-law Tyler. And uh, we are here because uh, my father built this cabin in uh, 1939, and they moved in in October of 39, and uh, stayed here for a couple of years while they, uh, my dad was managing the, the slot machines uh, up and down the trail here and up and down 61. And uh, when that uh, finally went uh, or became illegal, 
Uh, my dad didn't have a job, and he decided that, well, it's time to move into town, Adair. That was my mom's name. And uh, that's when they bought their house in Richfield and started their life in the cities. And Dean is the youngest son of six children. Yep. Dorothy. Five boys. Uh, Adair and Curtis. And, and one girl. One girl. And David and Dorothy were born here. Dorothy. Mm-hmm. This was her first home, born in January of 40, so five months after they moved in. And Katie is the youngest granddaughter, number 17, mm-hmm. of Curtis and Adair. We'll just start going through some of that. That's Curtis. Oh, wow. And it's when they first moved up here, they moved into a small cabin um, right yeah, yeah let me yeah. the cabin that cabin the first cabin was a, about a 16 by 20 and it's it was at right next door to where the bike shop is now okay it was right there so it was right um, in downtown yeah they, they got, right. got married um in october october 28th of 1937 curtis had been up here and rented this little cabin and then he and then dorothy i mean dorothy adair had never been up here, and so they got married and drove up here. And how old are they? He looks quite young in this photo. Oh, they were 21, 22. My mom was maybe 21, my dad 22. And then do you want to tell her the story about the snow story? I just think it's fascinating. Well, they were in town for, uh, and went up to some friend's house uh, here in town. Just up the, just not far, up the hill here. And it had snowed so hard that when they got out to leave, now back then everybody was driving Model A's, which had pretty good ground clearance, mm-hmm. you know. But even back then, this snowstorm was so heavy that they made it down the hill and then they got stuck at the bottom of the hill and they had to walk all the rest of the way. But they, my dad said they got, they, he came back the next day and the car was completely covered. And back then, they didn't have any snow plows or snow removal equipment. You know, the town had to literally dig itself out, you know, so. But the part was, is they, they were visiting these friends and they left early because it was like 930 and there was so much snow. And so they got stuck at the bottom of the hill. So to get to their cabin, what they did is they walked through a bunch of stores. It's got it written down there. Um, so they like walk through one sto- one cafe, go outside, walk through the grocery store. Oh my God. <laughs> go, go, go outside. And then they, finally they went, they went through like three places and then they had to walk like 75 feet. Oh yeah, here we go. In hip deep snow. Oh my this goodness. Is, now we only had to go uh, uh, downhill, so it wasn't so bad, but we plowed through until we got in front of Mabel's Cafe. And the snow was so bad and high that it was there, it was almost three feet deep there. And I believe Mabel's Cafe yeah. is now where, um, Mabel's Cafe, I believe, was like two doors down yeah. from Join Company. It was something, yeah. So kind of across the street from Ben Franklin next to where that yeah. parking lot is, the, the Ben Franklin parking lot, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly. I don't know. Here's a picture of downtown. That's like mm-hmm. So they went through Mabel's. Yep, they went through. took them behind. Yep. And uh, uh, then they went through uh, the back door. Then they got out across and went through Jackson's Cafe. And then they went across the street over to Pete Alms and went through the grocery store there yep. and out the back door. That's where the bank is now. Oh, okay. Next to Beth's. Okay. Gifts. 
that makes sense because yep. their store, their cabin was just a little bit away. When you said the grocery store, I was like, okay, it has to be that one. Yeah. Yeah. What he's reading <laughs> from is sometime in the eighties, his nephew Dwight um, Jr. Uh, interviewed Curtis, and these are just some memories that are transcribed from a like an interview he yeah. had with okay. him. Okay. So I don't know. That's in town somewhere, Nightingale Cafe. Nightingale Cafe. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. You know, I think that might be, it just looks to me like that's what is now Sven and Oli's. Yeah, it looks like the right area and the right building shape. I'll have to look that up. Now, this is in town here. Is that the standard? or? That is his best friend up here, a guy by the name of Walt Risch. Now, I think... That gas station that Walt had is now the Java Moose. The Java Moose. Okay, it was either that or the Harbor. The Harbor Park. Yeah, there was that standard gas station there. There used to be a gas station there. And I'm, I'm, but you're, you might be right with Java Moose because I. Yeah, it wasn't the, it wasn't the standard oil station. Oh, wow. So that must be like from the direction of their cabin up the hill. Yep, because there's the Ford. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dad mentions the Ford dealership because he had slot machines in there. That's what his yep. dad did, and he better tell yeah, me. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that because so your dad. Well, see, my dad was a uh, pretty good. He was pretty handy at fixing things, and he uh, met a guy in town that uh, said, "Hey, I am in need of somebody to uh, work on these slot machines that I have, and would you be willing to move up to Grand Forks, North Dakota?" And uh, he said, no, <laughs> I don't want to go up there. And then uh, a while later, the same guy came back to him and said, hey, I uh, got a need for a guy to go up to a small place called the village of Grand Marais, north of Duluth. And he said, yeah, we'll go there. <laughs> and so he came back and my mom and dad got married. And uh, two weeks later, they moved up to that cabin. I like this one, the parade here. Yeah. And these buildings, I mean, they're they're all still, still there. there. Yeah. Yep. Well, the theater isn't there anymore. Yep. Yep. That's the one and, that they did tear down. Yep. And it was brand new when my mom and dad moved up here. And the first movie that they saw in it was Gone with the Wind. Oh, wow. Yeah. They said they, you know, it's a four-hour-long movie, and they intermission between. And, <laughs> and they took a break and. With the intermission, went across the street for ice cream and came back. <laughs> wow. Anyway, when he in the off season, he like hauled pulp, pulp wood when his you know in the winters. So I don't know. There's just a bunch of things. Wood was a big thing up here. And so when did he build? So they they moved here, and then how long after that did they build this cabin? This cabin was built in the summer of '39, and they moved in in October of '39. And did they have any kids yet? Yeah, they had David, and Dorothy was on the way. Do you think, was Dorothy born in the house? No, they oh. went to a hospital in Duluth, so. Yeah. Oh, they do? We do know. They were modern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't, still they don't have a birthday. Imagine. Time, no, 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 not anymore. Imagine going into labor and having to go all the way all to the Duluth way, yeah. on a dirt road. In yeah. a, what was it, a Ford A? Yeah. Uh, an, uh, well, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that, oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> so this is... This is was a friend of Curtis's. Do you remember his name? This guy? He became the sheriff or something? That, yeah, here's the story, okay? My dad, when he was uh, getting the machines, 
uh, back after the state outlawed them, he hired a guy, he said, to help him go get these machines back before people started to rob them and, you know, <laughs> take them and that kind of thing. And uh, he paid the guy five bucks a day, which was a good wage back then. And uh, later on, uh, and he beca they became good friends because I think they were like poker buddies. Okay. And uh, he said that later on, the guy became the sheriff. And his name is Pat Bale. Oh. And that is the very first plane registered in Cook County. And that's Pat. So tell him the story about when you picked up the plane. <laughs> so what happened was he took, Pat Bale took lessons and went to Duluth to purchase his plane after he took the lessons and got certified, whatever it was back then. And my dad said, okay, I'll see ya. And uh, said goodbye to him. And then my dad raced up the trail <laughs> in his 38 Ford Flathead V8. And he beat him up the trail to what is the old airport uh, on Devil's Track Lake. The old original one. Yep. Okay. But it was just a barely a grass strip <laughs> then. You know. And he met him as he landed. And, the, oh and he God. never forgave him for that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, right. oh, wow. Yeah, that was in Pat's plane. Yeah, it's not exactly densely populated there. No. <laughs> really, it's still not, which is nice. <laughs> oh, it actually, it almost looks to me bigger then than it does now, but I'm sure that's mostly just trees. Yeah. You can see how they're, luck, yeah. they're planning town. Yeah. Right. They're, the they're setting up plots. Yeah, the out. grid is all laid out. Wow. I like they even still have the deer drive slow signs back then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there was a lot more deer back then. Yeah. And the reason why my dad said was because the feds had a bounty on wolves. And the bounty was $50. And you would kill the wolf and cut off its right paw. Or, oh. or you know, and bring it in. And he said, you know, you do that with three wolves and you could feed your family for the winter. Yeah. And that's why they practically went extinct. And now you are There's in a lot of trouble with that. Cabin. <laughs> oh, yeah. So who's taking all of these photos? That's a good question. Yeah. He, they, they had two really good friends up here, Walt and Irene Risch. Uh, and they were lifelong friends because I remember Walt and Irene moved out to Seattle and we actually went to visit them when I was 15. There's her with day with the Grand Marine Oh, Harbor there's the, the there's the yeah, Coast Guard cool? station right there. Still looks exactly that the is, same. That picture is probably really close to where the angry trout is now. So the so he he came up to manage these these machines, machines and yep. they were all over town. Or? Well, they were all over town and they were all the way up to uh, Thunder Bay and Grand Portage. And then he came all the way down to close to around two harbors. Cause I think he had all of Cook County. Yeah, he basically had most of that. And they didn't go past that because there were no more towns anywhere. Yeah. Off of 61, the closest town was Ely. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a little, little town itself. But they didn't even go there. So he just basically stayed up and down, uh, you know, on the highway on 61. And how long did they live in the house before... About three years. Almost three years. Because what happened? <laughs> well, they made the slot machines illegal. And once that happened, my dad had very little notice to get and grab all the machines because there were hundreds, well, not hundreds, but there was 
Lots of them, dozens of them. He had 130 of them, I think. And he had to go around to all kinds of places. And he had 48 hours. And he's probably driving around with a fair amount of money, too, I'd imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it was all coins, of course, so it wasn't exactly. But the one thing that they did to try to help keep the machines from being stolen was, was that in the bottom of the machines, there was a hollow portion, and they filled them with rocks, which made the machines extremely heavy and bulky to try to move. Uh, so that was that just made it even harder to collect the machines when he had to. This is the only picture we have of a slot machine. Oh, okay, so that's what it looked like. Yep. And so they put them in a base, like he said, with these heavy rocks. And there was somebody in town, uh, one of the businesses in town, one of the pool halls or bars, had two of them. And they, the, the proprietor and somebody else basically stole them. And what they did was, was they dug a grave for somebody that was getting buried and they dug it extra deep and put two of them in there the two that they stole and then buried the person on top oh my gosh <laughs> and my dad knows he knew who the person's grave was but he never told me he are, would, so are they still there they're still there yeah are you really oh i'm sure they're so underneath them so you just go to the cemetery and find somebody no it's probably no it's 1940 40 40 it was 1940 40 or 41 because he had yeah. 48 hours to retrieve all these machines. And he brought them all into the cabin, he talks about, and, and he and his wife sat up like all night, like pulling on, and he, he talks about how, you know, how the base and the machine, he, they put all these rocks yeah. and they couldn't move them. And he said he, he used the rocks for good use because he lined the driveway with them. But what the machines, when they would like get full, sometimes coins wouldn't make it into the bin that held the coins and they'd fall out. So, and so when he'd go in to collect the coins um, in an in establishment, like say the Ford dealership where he said he had one, he, the, the person got 50% of the proceeds and they kept 50%. And he talked about that, the, and a portion of that had to go to the bank in town. And it was like tax-free money that they had and they used it to buy a fire truck and put lights in town and stuff like that. So, um, but all this money that fell down, like amongst the rocks in the bottom of the machine, he and Adair just got to keep. <laughs> Nobody else <laughs> talked about that. So during their decision to leave, then so. was because of the fact that the machines were illegal and he didn't have a job. So they had, uh, they took. And it's still a little bit. I mean, it's post depression now, but it's still a yeah. on the right. Yep, it's on the other waning side. But he said that. What he paid for the land, I think he said, was $300 for this plot, okay, which is, I think, three-quarters of an acre. Mm -hmm. And it cost him a couple hundred dollars for the wood and to build the cabin, the materials. And uh, he sold it eventually for 1000 yeah. So they pocketed some money, and, and he had money that also cash from, you know, the last bit of the slot machines and went down into the cities and bought a little tiny house in Richfield. And then went to work for Honeywell. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the war broke out. And did he end up going over for that, or was he? No, he had uh, some sort of a de medical deferment because he had a a problem with his left foot. He had a some sort of a bone infection, infection that they had to remove part of it, and it deformed his foot. Uh, so, but he did work for Honeywell, and one of the things that he did for Honeywell was. When Honeywell was developing avionics for the Air Force, uh, 
one of the things that they were doing was they were developing the first autopilots because the B-17s and the B-29s were really hard to fly just by themselves. Yeah. You know, they were a real handful. And my dad's job was to go into the tail of the aircraft and he was trying to listen for the pilot to tell him, you know, the instructions of what he was supposed to do. But he was the only thing he was back there with was his little leather helmet with sheep wool, you know, and then one of those Air Force jackets that you see, this leather with the wool, the sheepskin yeah, wool, the you know, jackets. the bomber yeah. jacket, right. And his job was literally to cut the cable if the autopilot failed and the and the uh, pilot wanted manual control again. And so his job was just to sit back there, freeze. <laughs> and listen for the pilot's instructions. And it, because of that, my dad had, for the rest of his life, claustrophobia. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So they left, and then they raised four more children. And then they, Curtis, when Curtis retired. Yeah, well, I grew up with my parents. We moved to uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee when I was two and a half. And then we lived there until 69. Uh, and uh, moved back here to Minneapolis, to Minnesota, and Brooklyn Park. And we lived there for 14 years until I graduated from high school. And then they were, they were itching to move. So we got a triple bypass, was prematurely, uh, re you know, forcibly retired. And he was only 60. And so he's 60 years old. He's got this new heart working, and he just feels good with all this energy. He's got nothing to do, you know. So they decided that they were going to move up to Grand Marais again, and they bought a small cabin uh, on Devil's Track. But then they eventually bought an, another cabin that they did move into for about 10 or 11 years. Uh, they bought it from a woman by the name of Drapel, uh, was her name. And it's on the north side of the lake, and it was one of the nicest properties on Devil's Track because it was in the bay, you know, where the oh, seaplane yeah. dock is. Yeah. Okay, it's in that bay, and they had one of the only sandy beaches on the lake. It was pure sand. It was amazing. Uh, so they had that because uh, uh, for a long time, and then they moved back down to the city. And we decided that what my mother took a picture of my dad shoveling snow off the roof, hip deep, and he's 77 years old. And my brothers and I said, that's enough. Why don't you move back down there <laughs> and be with your grandchildren? <laughs> but so you guys spent a lot of years as family coming into Grand Marais. Oh, yeah. So you always point at the cabin as you drove in? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. We'd always remember that. Yep. Yep. But back then, it looked so different. It looked kind of, uh, how do I want to say politely, kind of ratty. Yeah. It did not look good, you know, but somebody did prop it up and put it on what is now this semi-foundation, okay, so that they can put and have utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just didn't look very good. That's why I really wasn't ever, you know, interested in it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've been coming up here for so long. Uh, I can remember the first time that I can remember coming up here was probably 1968, and we would camp in the campground when you could still camp on the shore. <laughs> and uh, I can remember I drove my sister just just crazy because I had so much energy and was so quick. But one of the things I always liked to do was try to balance myself on the logs in the harbor. Because they were all chained together and they were all just laying there just, oh, I can do that. Dangerous that is. Oh, I slip between one and you're gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
it's so cold in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, we've just got a, a, a kind of a long history with this yeah. town up here. And it's just kind of interesting that we have uh, so many family members that love coming up here still to this day. And, you know, it's just a lot of good, warm memories. You know, even though my parents have been gone for so long, it's still... You know, we have a bench for them that yeah. sits right across from the Blue Water and Trading Post. I found it yesterday. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the thing, Jay. When you sit on that, and now, when we bought that bench, you couldn't say, okay, we want it to be here. The city just randomly, randomly yeah. plotted them out. But when you sit on that bench, you can look between what's the Blue Water and the Trading Post right between it. And you can see the exact spot of where their first cabin was. Oh, my goodness. It's just, like, um, kind of freaky. Yeah. But it was great, too. It was just like, oh, you know? Yeah. And so my family used to come up here, but Grand Ray wasn't our destination. We just would go through it a lot because we travel and camp a lot. So I remember when there would be things in the harbor. So then when Dean and I first met in 1991, we were set up on a blind date, by the way. And uh, we came up here and... Uh, have been coming up here, you know, a couple times a year ever since. Always in the fall, usually around this time. My birthday is October third, so we celebrated several birthdays up here. And then Katie was born, and so she's grown up just coming here and loving it, and you know. Yep. And now yeah. we've indoctrinated her husband Tyler. Tyler. Yeah. He's snuck in from his room. And so, yeah, so we've just had... We just keep the tradition going. Had a connection. So then, you know, a couple years ago, I'm like like looking around and I see that, you know, this cabin has been renovated and (laughs) it's for rent. And I'm like, we've got to... Well, I saw it online because I I do, I love Google Maps. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that this was uh, highlighted... And then I saw the the pictures from the interior. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it, what they did to this place, you know. And then we decided that, because we've been looking for some time to try to rent it during the periods that we'd like to come up here. And it's just like booked, you know. But somebody found it, and she booked it for us. (laughs) And uh, so this is the first time in 79 years that an Erickson has slept under this roof. Wow. (laughs) What do you think your dad would think of it? He'd love it. He just loved it. All right, so that was the interview, Joe. What'd you think? Fantastic, interesting, really cool that this house is still, you know, part of the community and is available for people that are visiting the North Shore in Grand Marais. Um, and so, more information on that actual home, Jay. If you wanted, if somebody was interested in renting that, what, what's the next step for them? So that's called Northern Lights Cottage, and that can be found at CascadeVacationRentals.com. Of course, don't forget to use promo code PODCAST when you check out and get yourself a nice discount. Okay. Well, so <laughs> speaking of things and discounts and things that, you know, money, let's just say, mm-hmm. uh, things that got my attention, one thing in particular, and you, you touched on it, but I was like perked up in a huge way. These slot machines... That were maybe buried <laughs> in the Grand Marais Cemetery. Whoa! Yeah, I, what's up with that? You know, I I I, ca- I actually did try to double back on that, and they kind of skirted away from it because I think what they know is or okay. So a lot of this interview was based on an interview that Dean's nephew Dwight had done with his grandpa Curtis in 1989, and this can actually be found. I, I discovered at the Cook County Historical Society the recording of this interview 
What we had was a transcript of it, and that story was read right off the transcript. So it came right from Curtis. So part of me, like, I'm a little torn. Is it true? Is it not true? But since it came, you know, it's not a story passed down so much. It was, you know, the transcript from the guy it happened to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to take a moment to say that it's probably very, very illegal to dig up somebody's grave. And so, you know, don't go looking don't for Don't go it. looking for this, yes. <laughs> um First of all, a couple things, Jay, actually come to mind. Um, there's the myth of buried treasure, right? Mm-hmm. That's like the most traditional story of, of folklore is like buried treasure. It's captivating to the human uh, spirit and so forth. But you, you did some investigative reporting on this. Kudos to you, by the way, for that. <laughs> like doing this research, supplemental research, finding these transcripts and this information at the historical society. Um, you kind of went all in on this one, which I did. is really I, cool, and I appreciate that. Sparked um, my interest. Yeah, so it seems a little more outside the norm of like a campfire story. Mm-hmm. This seems to have some, uh, you know, you've got names, you've got actual dates, names, the whole thing going on. So it seems it's a compelling story at the very least, and and I tip my cap to you. I thought I, you did a great job with the interview and, and finding out this information. I do like to think it's there. The idea of it is just fun. Like, oh, there's buried treasure in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Fun story, you know. It's... Really cool story. And it does fit in with our October theme yeah. we have going on and everything. So really interesting interview. Um, If somebody wanted to see more about this, follow some links here. Do you have, you know, text put together? And yeah, like so that? on the Cascade Vacation Rentals website, we do have, and this will be in the show notes for the podcast, I wrote out pretty much... This story, you actually get a little bit more off of the podcast if you listen to the whole interview Mm -hmm. than you did from the story I wrote up. But there's some more detail in there, including, and actually there's a couple of corrections I wanted to make um, that we kind of dug into it later. The first one was he mentioned hiring a friend to help him gather up the slot machines, and he said the name Pat Bale. Pat Bale is actually the name of the sheriff at the time. Mm. And the gentleman he hired to help collect the slot machines was a man named Emerson Morris, who also ended up being sheriff of Cook County later on. So there's okay. there's two sheriffs involved here, and he just kind of got their names backwards. So Pat Bale was actually the sheriff in 1940. So if anybody's a Grand Murray historian and was like, wait a second, if the sheriff just knocked on his door and then he hired this guy, why is he hiring the sheriff? It, that's that's not, there's just a little bit of confusion there. Okay. Um, the you know So some of the names that he brought up, our names people who are local will recognize, but also if you are a fan of Cook County history, you know, the sheriff's names might come up when you're looking up stories and things like that. So Jay White, fact checking, <laughs> investigative. I this whole thing. Yeah. It, was, it was very intriguing. I just <laughs> wanted to make sure that the story was being told accurately. That's great. You know, Curtis and Adair, they lived here for three years in the 1930s and 40s, left for many years and then came back. You know, they retired on Devil's Track Lake and were there until a couple years before they they moved back to the cities when they were getting a little bit older and it became harder to maintain their property. But they're Grand Marais locals. Yeah. So I wanted to do the story right, make sure it was being told correctly. And it's got some interesting characters. And I think that's kind of what makes Grand Marais so cool. Indeed. Yeah. Good point. And uh, I think for a mini episode, mini sewed, 
this is totally exactly what we want and it fits in perfectly with October. So uh, just a lot of fun here. And thanks for all your hard work on this, Jay. Oh, well, it was a lot of fun. And I'm hoping to bring more of these maybe little dips into the history and see what we can learn about grammar because I learned a lot. Yeah. So anybody that has some of these tales from the past or anything that you think might be a good fit. What's the best way, Jay, to get a hold of us? Right now, the best way is to reach out to me. It's jay at staycvr.com. And I am working on getting a Facebook page going. <laughs> Joe hates Facebook, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I think you need to investigate that a little more. It's not that I hate it. It's just, you know, maybe not the right fit for me okay. personally. All right, then. <laughs> But we're going to get a Facebook page going where you can send in and contact us for some suggestions. Otherwise, I can also be reached through the Cascade Vacation Rentals Facebook page. So if you're like to reach out through social media, that would be the place to do it right now. And yeah, we'll hopefully get that page up and running soon and then be back next week. Talking mobsters. Mobsters. I'm excited for this one. It's a very interesting from the research I've done so far. Cook County had itself a lot of mobsters. The end of the road, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thanks again for tuning in to the podcast, as always. And we'll be back with a full episode soon. Till then, this is Exploring the North Shore. With Joe. And Jay. <laughs>